Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 4 of Appetite for Distraction, a podcast dissecting music and tech. I'm Yash, I write a newsletter called Appetite for Distraction. And I'm Martin, I write a newsletter called Music X. And today we have our first guest. So the, the moment that Yash and I started to do this, we said that we definitely want to bring guests on. So we're very happy that we have Robin Spotterswood, or Way Z, who is the co-founder of Nifty Music. Um, he's a blockchain developer with experience in digital marketing and we've asked him here because with the current struggles in the markets we just want to know how to navigate all these pitfalls around volatility and royalties and we thought he would be the perfect person to ask about this robin let's set the scene a little bit first what is nifty music for people who might not have heard of it before why nifty music when you started and why is it still a thing that matters at uh, yeah Thanks for having me on the podcast, Yash and Martin. It's great to be here. We started it as a music NFT accelerator because we saw that um, there was lots of appetite for people dropping their music on the blockchain and not much um, knowledge about how to do that. So um, the idea was we act a little bit like a startup accelerator in that we take in um, musicians we give them the tools they need to um, to develop their music and release it on the blockchain. And we just support them from zero to sold out. The, the end goal is always you want to sell out your collection um, and make sure that it's a success. Um, so that's, that's what we did. We started because um, my co-founder Milo, or Nifty Sax, as he's known in the music NFT world, um, he released a collection on Ethereum um, last year, back when music NFTs were really right at the start, there were barely any music NFTs, and um, he he wanted to, to do a bigger collection. He want, he saw the success of PFP projects, he saw the success of other collections um, releasing many editions, and he wanted to do the same thing for music. And he also wanted to borrow some of the things from those um, areas, such as traits and rarities and this kind of um, interesting rarity structure and that did really well i when we dropped that it was really late at night um and i had been coding all day and i just i I, we dropped it i waited a couple of hours we there were some some mints coming in but i just kind of assumed that it would be a slow gradual um mint and then i went to bed and woke up the next day and it sold out in like a couple of hours um so that was very exciting and from there we realized that this was something that was a thing it was possible and there is there was already other people asking how do we do this what's what how do we make a music nft at that time of course there were not a lot of people doing this so so i I can imagine that a lot of people came up to you and said oh hey you've done this and you've done this successfully now tell us how to do this yeah exactly um and still people are doing that but people saw the success of milo's first collection the nifty sax spheres and they said we want to do this as well and that's that's where we saw the gap in the market. That's where we saw, okay, maybe this is a business. Maybe we can actually turn turn Web two musicians into Web three musicians and help them along the way. Super interesting. Actually, before we get into the weeds, uh, Robin, do you mind walking us through what led you down the crypto rabbit hole? Because I think that'll be really interesting for other founders or artists to to know. Yeah, sure. Um, so I found out about um, Bitcoin back in 2012, 2013, very, very early. 
I think it's the same story. You find out about this technology and then you think, okay, that's interesting, but will it last? What's the actual real world application? Um, and I couldn't really, really see one. And then I found out about Ethereum um, and again, learned about it, did some research, but put it on the back burner, didn't really dive in. And then I found out about NFTs um, at the beginning of, of last year, 2021. And that's when I started to get really interested. Um, and I saw the direct application and I've been a musician all my life. So my mind in- instantly went to how does this apply to music? And actually, 10 years ago, even before, um, this is more like, yeah, more like 10, 15 years ago, before um, the blockchain was a thing, I was building a company that was selling shares in musicians. I was, I had a startup called um, Eureka, which, or then Orcadia, which was selling um, tiny shares in, in artists and dividing them up. And, and there was kind of a marketplace and that didn't do too well. That folded after a, a couple of years, but it was way before the blockchain. And um, this was this was a, a tech stack that would allow me to do that, but with way more um, people involved and way more like uh, sort of proof in the technology. Yeah, I, I really want to double click on um, on that project, actually, because it's a great way to kind of think about valuable use cases um, keeping the technology aside and then see how Web3 can come in and uh, actually um, enable things that weren't possible back then. So if we could do kind of like a postmortem, we don't we don't have to obviously get into the details of it, but like what were the main things that were lacking in the space from a technology perspective or even from like just in the music industry, were we not um, ready for a marketplace like that or... Yeah, what, what was what was going on back then? Um, it was a small startup. We had a few musicians who were very experimental on the cutting edge of of technology, and they they believed in the project. But getting confidence in a marketplace is very difficult. Getting people to buy into um, the idea that they're they're buying a, a fraction of an artist's outputs, and this idea of fractionalization is not comfortable for most people. Um, and it's, it's very difficult for people to understand what they're actually buying when they're buying an NFT. Um, so the confidence wasn't there. Um, we were p- pushing a product that was so incredibly different and so new and way ahead of its time, really. Um, so the, 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 the technology hadn't really caught up. Um, and we were trying to build not only a marketplace, but also the, the backbone infrastructure of this trading system. You had... Um, charts showing different artists and whether their their price was going up and down the idea was a a stock market um for music um then we kind of come to present day and and now you're working on on nifty music with with all of these learnings from from your previous startup and i guess my question is is there a tangible difference between what the technology can enable um today versus back then or is it more of a psychological shift? Because as we know, um, technology enables certain things, but if uh, musicians and um, if music fans aren't ready for a specific behavior, then you know this whole discussion is pointless, right? So do you see both those, um, those things shifting? So on a psychological front, but then also from a technology perspective? Yes. So when I was building Orcadia, it was a centralized product. There was no 
distribution. There was no decentralization, um, which is a big factor in trust, in consumer trust. If if I'm buying something, I don't want to worry about the server going down or um, the company going bust. And so that's, that's, I think, where a lot of the confidence in the blockchain and in music NFTs and NFTs in general comes from is that it's massively decentralized and distributed over thousands of um, nodes across across the world. So it's very, very robust. Um, and that's, that confidence in the technology allows us to do things like promoting NFTs. Um, there's this idea that it will, it will outlive all of us. If, if, um, if I buy an NFT today, I can give it to my grandchildren and, and their grandchildren and, and it will um, c- continue down the line until the end of the world. And um, th- yeah, that's just not possible when you've got an AWS server and you know a website. Um, and so does that also mean that Nifty Music is is fully decentralized? Yes. So Nifty Music is um, in in many ways it's easy to think about it in the in the old traditional record label structure, um, in that we have artists and we do things to promote their music and we help them to release their music. But in other ways, it's completely different to a Web two record label um, because we are not actually taking rights or owning any of the music or signing multi multi record deals or anything like that um we are helping the artists to release it themselves on the blockchain and once they've released it on the blockchain all of the all of the art all of the music is stored in decentralized storage so they own the music they own all the rights the artist has control of everything um and it's it's there forever. There's, there's no, there's no removing it. If Nifty Music was to go bust, or if we were all to get hit by buses, then um, the music would continue, the NFTs would continue, and um, they would hold their value. So there's this whole framework around um, progressive decentralization and how you kind of start out a little centralized and then slowly, as as you know, as your project scales, you decentralize key functions. And at some point, you kind of exit to community, as they say. Um, were you guys thinking about that model? Or can you build in a completely decentralized way from the get-go versus uh, building a slightly centralized product and then slowly decentralizing? Yeah, it's something that I think about a lot because one of the promises of blockchain technology is that it's decentralized and that you don't have this um, this one point of failure, right? But um, it's actually, in, in practice, it's incredibly difficult to build something that's truly decentralized. Even even services that claim to be decentralized most of the time are not. And even some of the biggest NFT collections, when you look at the technology, they are stored on centralized servers. And if, if you're not backing them up and that server goes down or gets corrupted or for some reason you lose it, that's your NFT gone. Um, all you've got is that that record on the blockchain. So it's important to understand, firstly, what is decentralized and what isn't decentralized, um, because I think that's there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about that. Um, but also, when, like you say, when you're building a company, when you're a founder and you want to make the most of this new technology, I think realistically the only way to do it is to start decentralized and then gradually pick apart what can be decentralized. Start with the the old method. Start with a a server on a on a on a platform and then gradually decentralize it and gradually make things 
more robust for the long term. But it's very, very difficult to, to make everything fully decentralized. There's always elements that, that don't decentralize. And I think that's fine. Um, but yeah, let's just let's just talk about it, right? That's always the way Absolutely. that I kind of uh, kind of think about that. Um, this is a great segue into the the whole FTX fiasco. You know, essentially, this is what this is what happened, right? A lot of folks um, didn't realize that FTX, a so-called um, um, crypto exchange, was in in reality functioning like a traditional financial institution and and a corrupt one at that. I think it's really important for for consumers to be aware of the the proje- projects they engage with in crypto because, like you said, there are a lot of seemingly decentralized projects that operate in very centralized ways and um, a lot of people think it's not a big deal till it is you know till something like an FTX happens and that's when everyone really understands the importance of decentralization and what it enables we'd love to get your just your higher level thoughts on how this whole situation affects music if it does in, in your opinion of course crypto prices are down but Beyond that, do you think this will have a lasting impact on on adoption, or you know, for folks to come into crypto, uh, specifically music crypto? I mean, yeah, a problem that music NFT artists have all the time is trust, right? And that's a general problem within the crypto industry. But um, I, I see it on a personal level because we have we have musicians that that work with Nifty Music who. Um, who have these large Web2 followings. They have tens of thousands of people following them on, on Instagram, on social media. Um, and the the minute they mention anything about NFTs, there'll be a backlash. There'll be people in the comments saying it's a scam um, and they'll quote all of these examples. So the FTX thing is just the latest example that they can use to show that it's um, it's a scam and it's, it's not going to work and it's a pyramid scheme and all of those other things. Um, so it's, it's bad news. But having said that, this has happened before. Like this is, this is not the first time like something like this has happened and it will probably happen again. Um, the important thing to, to note is that music NFTs are actually doing very well right now. Um, they're, they're bucking the trend to a certain extent um, and we're in a bear market and we have been for a while. But if you look at the floor price of music NFTs, they're gradually rising for the, um, for the, for the larger collections. And um, I think that will continue. Personally, I, I'm very obviously I'm very bullish on music NFTs, but I think that it's interesting when you when you're in Twitter Spaces and when you're talking to people about which NFTs they hold, they'll talk about the PFPs and they'll talk about um, they'll talk about the other collections and they'll talk about brands and they'll talk about companies and they'll talk about things kind of slightly abstract. Um, but when they talk about music NFTs, they talk about people. They talk about the musicians themselves. They say, I'm collecting Violetta, I'm collecting Sammy, I'm collecting Josh. And I think that's a very important distinction because um, you you have that human connection. These artists are not going to stop making music. These artists are are in it for the long term. This is their careers. Um, They're not going to, you know, rug, they're not going to drop the project and run because they can't. Everybody knows where they live. They know know where they're going to be performing next. Um, it's very, very personal. We know this first wave of um, of artists in music and crypto, and they've been pushing the envelope. But do you see a second wave of um, 
of artists coming in where you know the music nft is not the value itself it's more about um you know the value you create for your fans where they're just using music nfts as a technology but to enable true fandom um and behaviors that that are inherent to to humans and and just music fandom in general i think that's already happening yes i think that um the first wave maybe were experimenting a little bit and um people were thinking about the nfts themselves as tracks on an album or specific releases um and i've seen a shift in the last year or so between people people starting to understand that it's not about the nft itself it's about the record of ownership um which gets to the heart of what an nft is you're not really buying a jpeg or an mp3 or whatever you're buying into um, a collection you're buying into a community Um, and i think that that is growing and people are understanding that a bit more and they're starting to treat nfts like tickets and um, this is your your pass your membership pass and by holding this membership pass you get these things Um, i don't want to use the word utility because people overuse that and it doesn't really explain it Um, but it's more like having a distributed record of who has joined your club and when and you can use that in like really creative ways um you can release music to these people you can token gate music um and you can token gate um performances and concerts and gigs and you can give people access to merch and money off um products and there are so many things you can do with when you know who your collectors are and how long they've been a collector and when they started being a collector. Um, so there's there's this whole like financial element of uh, floor prices and trying to get money from like trying to flip NFTs for profit. But I, I think that's less of the, the focus here. I think the focus really is building communities and learning how to provide value to those communities over time, how to build those communities. Um, and that's that's the people that are most successful in the the NFT industry right now are the people that understand that, I think. Yeah, and I think that sort of leads into like almost a rephrasing of the question that Yash just asked. Is maybe it's not as like the second wave is not really about artists, but it's more about collectors. So it's more about people realizing like, hey, okay, so if I collect an NFT, it means I you know, am in this community, and um, you know I can see this these token gated performances and i can i can get all these benefits um and i think that there is probably a bigger mind shift that is happening than than with the artists right because we as consumers have been so used to just licensing music every time we we play it on spotify even though we don't realize we're licensing it um to becoming like oh i'm i'm collecting music i'm doing this thing you know i mean if if i would look to my left there would be my cd collection that has recently gotten back into my room right um yeah Yeah, there's this um there's this thing that people used to do at parties which still happens to a certain extent you walk into a party and some people will go and they'll check the record collection or they'll walk into someone's living room and they're interested in their cds that sort of thing happens with music entities as well we're still building the tools to facilitate that but you're right it's the focus is on the collector and um the collector can do things now that they can't. They, they, they weren't easily able to do before. Um, they, they weren't able to create sub communities within 
um, a community. So, for example, one of our artists, Violetta, she has a very um, complex and very interesting uh, traits and rarity structure, which means that people within her communities form organically form these sub communities who um like there's a cat for example and and some people really like specific colors of the cats and they there's also the the frames and there are a limited number of diamond frames and the what the people that hold those diamond frames form this council within her community there's, they're called the diamond frame council and they they have meetings without violetta like completely independently of the artist about how to promote the collection how to to make the next move and they they make recommendations and they they are shareholders really um so the collectors become they have so much more power now than than they would as fans or as 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 people in a concert these people are yes they've bought into the collection they've, they've spent money on the nfts but they also now hold a piece of the future of, of violetta and it's it's in their it's in their interest to make it Bigger. Lee Jin tweeted a few weeks ago where where she said that is there a Dunbar's number to to ownership, where you know there are only a limited number of things we can own and actually care about. So as a music fan and someone who's not the most proactive music consumer, but you know listens to to music often, do you do you see a future where someone like that? will also engage with music NFTs, will also participate in governance or in community-driven projects? Or will it always be a case where we have all of these Web2 streaming services as top of funnel and then have your 100 true fans or your 1,000 true fans participating in community-led projects? How do you think about like the future of music fandom and music consumption in general? A lot of people think that now that we've invented... Um, web3 and now that music nfts are a thing we need to reinvent the uh, the spotify model we need to rebuild spotify and web3 and i don't think that's the case i think that spotify is very good at distributing music and and i don't think we're going to get much better than that the problem really was the business model not the online distribution um you you discover artists through um maybe web3 discovery tools but you stream the music from spotify you engage with the music in the same way that you have been but instead of the artist relying on 0.00001 dollars per stream the artist then converts listeners into collectors um and we've seen that there are different types of collectors there's not just one collector within a collection you've maybe got five or six different very distinct cohorts um and they have different needs and different wants and they're very very different types of people um, as an artist, you can say, okay, you're listening to my music. Um, why don't you take the next step and become part of my um, c- community? And then once they're part of the community, maybe you take the next step and you become part of the inner council, or maybe you want to be involved more in, in this, or maybe you want to be on the street team or whatever it is. They start to involve these people. The key part is making the jump from Web 2 to Web 3, um, which right now is very difficult um, because... If you imagine somebody finds your music on Spotify, they're very unlikely to A, know what an NFT is and B, be willing to invest in one right now. But I think that will change over time and it might take a long time, but gradually the trust and the technological barriers will come down to the point where people are more comfortable with that being the next logical step. If I want to get tickets to the next concert, it's it's not enough just to go on Ticketmaster. I have to buy the NFT and then 
sort of engage more with the, with the artist and the community. Yeah, and I think actually the live element is is probably a good example into how 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 different fan segments already exist, right? Because there is all the all the the the, the silly things around dynamic pricing um, uh, come from a place where people have indicated that they want to pay more for certain things, right? I want to pay more to stand in the front. I want to pay more to not have to pay for my beer separately when I get to the gig, and it's that sort of um uh, segmentation that is also sort of what you're talking about right yeah and some people have visualized this quite well um i think sound.xyz have got this thing now where you can see uh, the level of holdings for certain certain drops and the people that hold more kind of the people in the front seats so it's it it is a nice way to think about it the the big holders are the people that in a, in a concert that would pay for the best seats um and that could even translate to an actual concert where you give the best seats to the biggest holders i don't know but the it's the same kind of thing you're you're proving your proving your worth as a fan or proving your involvement or your love for the artist by by buying in but also it's not just being a fan like some people yes they want to be fans other people have music experience like music industry experience some people are marketers some people understand the industry and they also happen to be holders of music nfts so they are willing to lend their experience to the artist in exchange for increasing the value of the collection. Um, so we're seeing this shift of power from the traditional Web2 uh, record labels where everything's centralized. They pick the artists, they have in-house marketing, in-house um, everything, and then the artist gets a multi-album deal and they get uh, the, the, the record label gets a large percentage of that. And now we're seeing the artist keeps everything and the artist chooses to maybe hire some services from a record label but it's completely in in their control, and um, and they use their community as well. They're using like people are offering these services for free because they're part of the business. They- yeah, and I think I mean it's more about um, what can you what can you service, right? Um, and who would be interested in that? And I and I think one of the the key elements for for music NFT specifically is that it's about hey, who do you who is in your community? How can you grow that? Um, which, uh, from like an investor perspective, uh, like like Lee Jin has, for example, is maybe not what you would be interested in. But uh, from a music industry perspective, it's super interesting to see how granular it is to actually focus on the artist. Yeah, th- there's a bit of a misconception there, though, because I think a, a lot of artists that come to us and say, um, I want to release a music NFT, but I do experimental jazz or I do... Um, this 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 genre of music that's way out there and and not compatible with existing music NFTs, um, and they say there's no market for it. But you're not finding a a uh, a group of collectors that like your are specifically in your niche. What you're doing is you're targeting NFT collectors in general. Most most NFT collectors like music, um, and if if they like they believe in you, they will buy your NFT. So it's not about finding these tiny pockets of genre um, markets. It's it's about addressing the the entire NFT music NFT market, and then the entire NFT market, and then anyone with a wallet. And then in the future, obviously, there's Web two and like I don't know the the music industry is a, valued at twenty six billion dollars. There's a huge huge potential there, but that's long long term, and it's going to be lots of hurdles to to jump over before we get there. That's a super yeah, interesting and- way to look at it. Yeah, totally. It is. It is. And I love the fact that um, 
you know, reputation is on chain now where you can kind of see the degrees of fandom. So when someone says that they've been there since day one, you can verify that on chain, which is, which is pretty incredible. Um, and that kind of leads me to my next question. What's happening in the, the tools landscape? So for example, yes, in theory, you can see reputation on chain. You can kind of verify whether you know, this person has actually been there since day one and you kind of know who your, you know, 10 cult fans are, so to speak. But in terms of tooling, have we seen a shift from, because I'm kind of thinking, you know, this is pretty overwhelming for an artist, right? Because community management is, uh, as we all know, very, um, very time consuming. And uh, of course, as a musician, you want to make music, but then you also have this community to manage. Um, if there are tokens involved, you're also almost like this, um, you know, you're almost like a CEO talking to your shareholders, you know, so you have all of these different hats to put on. And um, yeah, I'm just curious to know what artists um, on Nifty Music are doing, but then also in terms of tooling, what are we, what are we seeing? There's a, like a shift from the traditional web to uh, record label model to the web three artist DAO model, I think is the best way of describing it, where the artist is the, organizer of a DAO um, and one of the most valuable members of that DAO by by definition but um, they they are in control of this decentralized business they are the CEO of um, their own record label their own um, music business and whereas before the record label would provide these tools they would give the artists access to their marketing department they would give the artists access to their community management expertise all of these things would be managed for them. Um, the artists in Web3 are getting dropped in at the deep end a little bit. They're selling out these big collections, making a huge amount of money, and then um, having to address these problems alone a lot of the time because the infrastructure isn't there. So um, so we're seeing uh, community management being paid for and hired by the artist and, um, and marketing and brand deals all being negotiated by the artist um so right now it's 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 quite a lonely quite a sparse landscape i think that will change over time as these agencies and um startups fill the gaps um and nifty music is part of that we are we are helping to build the initial artist DAO, and we sort of put the necessary pieces in place and then it it begins once the collection sold out they are now running that DAO. Um, but the steps after that are less defined. Um, so, yeah, I see. I see the landscape, the tooling landscape, changing from one of one big record label providing everything to having these smaller products, different SaaS options, um, where artists can pick between a, a selection of ten or twenty different options, um, and it being much more focused on what the artist wants to do and how they want to handle their own um, their own business. How does this reflect in the way that the the whole accelerator program developed basically over the course of like a year and a half? Well, we started off um, doing very big collections and we, we still do do very big, big collections, but we've shifted as Nifty Music to smaller, um, smaller collections with more people because we're at a point now where we're trying to scale this thing. We've proven the, the model. 
we know that there's there's a market for this. We know that people are interested in music NFTs and it's growing um, and people are approaching us every day because um, they want to drop with us. But um, it's very difficult to scale this 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 solution because it's a big challenge and it's a lot of education, a lot of tech and a lot of hurdles to jump over. So we are now moving from um, irregular large drops to more regular small drops with more artists. Um, and, and an example of that is the Nifty Music Academy, which is a, a cohort of 15 to 20 artists who um, learn together. They have weekly calls together. They have spaces together. They do drop parties together. And they, it, it's a much more scalable solution because there's, there's lots of people doing it at the same time. And also there's, there's benefits to that. There's, there's cross-pollination of, of information and learning and um, there's a community. And, and then we're thinking that the people that want to then take it to the next level and do a big, um, big collection of 1,500 to 2,000 NFTs, something like that, can then do that afterwards. And they've already had the, the opportunity to learn. There's much more knowledge there before they do the big drop because uh, it's, it's difficult to find people that actually artists that have all the qualities needed to, do, to be an NFT musician. Because like I said, right now, you're on your own for a lot of it. Um, you have to know how to build a community. You have to know how to build engagement. You have to, uh, you have to know how to do all these things. You have to be a one-person army. And um, it's not enough to just be a musician that focuses on the music alone and lets the record label do everything else. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I think one of the interesting things is that uh, you're almost developing a scene, right? Um, it's not just a community uh, around uh, like Nifty Music consisting of artists who have dropped with you. You think that there will be like this scene that comes out of it where people will keep supporting each other um, and where, where people from the outside will also know like, oh, this is what's happening there because it's this scene that has these particularities. It's not something I predicted when we started, but it's definitely happening. Um, we're seeing it in when we travel around in conferences, we're seeing it in um, concerts and obviously online in Twitter spaces and places like that. But it's interesting to see that the, the, the artists that we've worked with and some that we haven't, but there's, there is a community of NFT artists who operate together and they speak to each other every day. They go to each other's concerts. A lot of the collectors are the same people. So they'll, they'll have, have NFTs in Sammy, Violetta, Josh, Ray. There's, all of these people have the same community um, and they're growing together because every time somebody has a drop, the other people will help to promote it. And the, the, the collectors that are already in that ecosystem are the first people in line to, to get it. So it's, there's a lot of um, power from the, the community. Um, and I think that's just going to grow, uh, to be honest. I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. Because we're seeing there's more and more tools and more and more ways that people can um, share collectors and share uh, funds. There's, there's, it's not a zero-sum game when it comes to music NFTs by any stretch of the imagination. It's possible for a, a rising tide to, to lift all ships. Um, and we're seeing that happening. The whole, the whole thing is just getting bigger and bigger. So it's going to shift it a little bit here because we we also wanted to talk to you about um, uh, royalties on secondary sales, which is a bit of a hot topic um, as well currently because they're um, not being enforced all the time anymore. So maybe just quickly sort of 
tell us where you stand on this and then um, how you would like to see this develop. Yeah, I think that it's important to go back and understand why we have royalties in the first place. One of the big promises of Tease was the ability to, um, for the artist to earn whenever the value of something appreciated a, a significant amount. If we think about the olden days when people were painting and uh, maybe Picasso painted his first painting and then it, it suddenly it's worth $2 million and Picasso doesn't see any of that money. It just gets, it, it, it goes from one person to another and it makes the collectors rich, but not the artist. Um, and the NFT model is different because it's all, it's all computer code, right? It's, it's all on the blockchain. So um, in theory, why not in, in, ensure that every trade, um, a bit of that goes back to the artist to just keep them, keep them going? And that has worked. Historically, we've seen that working, especially in the big NFT collections, in the big PFP collections. It can, it can sustain an entire business just from secondary royalties. If, you're, if your NFTs are worth $10,000 each and every time, um, every time they, get tri- they get sold or bought, 10% of that goes to the owners of the collection, that's a huge amount of money and that's um, really powerful. Having said that, that's not the only business model for, for NFT collection holders. Um, yes, you can drop one big collection, your Genesis, and then if you're, if you're relying on NFTs, then you don't have to drop anything else. You can just wait for the, the royalties to come in and as, assuming that you, you keep momentum and assuming there's still people trading, um, that's, that's, that's not a problem. But the problem is, so the issue here is that secondary royalties are a huge technical problem because... Um, the, at first they weren't on chain at all so it was just a setting that you could change on OpenSea and you could choose a percentage and a wallet and that was it um, and then they started to move towards an indicator on the chain so you'd have somewhere in your smart contract you'd say ideally we'd like to get 10% of secondary royalties but it was still down to the market whether they actually enforced that um, and then this, the latest development is OpenSea saying we're going to enforce this, and if you if you don't force um, the, the the marketplaces to take this ten percent royalty or whatever it is, then we won't let you trade, which is a very heavy handed um, method of doing it. But OpenSea has a has a large market share, so they think they can get away with it. Um, but I think that if you really want to enable free trade and, and keep things open, it's very difficult to enforce a a secondary royalty and um, really marketplaces are for traders. They're for, they're for collectors rather than artists or, or, or business people. Um, they're, they're not, they're not for the musicians or the PFP collection holders or whoever it is. They're for the people trading those things um, because the nature of the blockchain means you can, tr- you should be able to trade anywhere. You shouldn't be tied into a certain uh, model or a certain uh, platform. So I think that, we, we, it's it's going to be interesting to see. It's so early days. It's going to be interesting to see how many of these collections actually add this um, this this new thing from OpenSea. But in my opinion, it should be open. You should be able to trade wherever you want, and the the collector should decide: Do I want to give ten percent of this trade to the artist, or do I want to trade it outside of that and keep it for myself? Um, yes, that's a selfish decision, maybe, but it should be a decision that they're able to make. I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced that. It should be enforced uh, on on the blockchain because it's um, it's going down a dangerous path. Can you maybe say why that is a dangerous path? Yeah, I mean it's 
it's enforcing um it's it's basically making you use certain platforms and and there might be examples where you don't want to use you you don't want to give 10% to the artist um or maybe it's it's actually in the artist's interest for you not to do 10%. It, it's 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 interesting interesting to see that when you have lower um creator royalties it's an incentive to trade more like more trade will happen on a collection that has zero royalties versus a collection that has 10% um the maximum on OpenSea. So it it sometimes it is a decision do I want to um encourage trade or do I want to encourage them to trade on this thing or do I want to encourage them to pay the 10% royalty? I don't think it's as simple as saying you should always pay an artist royalty. I think it's there are there are instances where it makes sense to not pay it. And if it's if it's enforced on the blockchain and in the code, then you're limiting what can be done with that collection. And it's it's too early to start putting barriers up. Yeah, I think um Robin, could you explain you know why this is significant? You know, most of these platforms um should only act as clients. Uh, running on, you know, underlying decentralized protocols. But we're seeing a situation where platforms are now making significant decisions for artists, um, which we, you know, which crypto was supposed to solve. Uh, and it does solve that. But why are we seeing the situation where some of these platforms are making these heavy handed decisions? And yeah, what's the what's the play from OpenSea's angle? Is uh, I think we spoke about this earlier, where a lot of seemingly decentralized projects are quite centralized in the way they operate and operate like traditional businesses. Um, so yeah, could you could you kind of lay out the landscape there and you know why this is happening? Yeah. Um, so from OpenSea's perspective, they they looked at the data and they saw that they were losing um, market share. Basically, they they saw that if they were to continue down this road, they would be a smaller part of the NFT trading landscape. So they frame it as this is good for artists. We want to protect artist royalties, but that is not the case at all. This is a purely business decision by OpenSea. They want to keep people trading on OpenSea. Um, and obviously, if it's a choice between paying 10% to the artist on OpenSea or not paying 10% to, arti- to, to the artist on another platform, some people will choose not to pay that um, secondary royalty. They want they want they want a, a world where the uh, the collectors don't have that choice. Um, and it's it's just a bit dangerous, I think, to to allow a, a a marketplace at this stage in the technology to enforce that kind of thing. Um, and yes, they are the biggest by a long stretch, but there are there are smaller marketplaces, smaller competitors who are doing interesting things in the space and um this this is a power play by OpenSea to try and eradicate those that aren't playing by by their rules um and i i don't think it's good for for anyone really yeah i mean this underscores a problem i've been thinking about which is if you want discovery at scale it does entail aggregation and once you aggregate it does entail centralization. So is there a world where, you know, we can ha- have all the benefits of decentralization, but then also, of course, have the benefits of discovery and aggregation theory and having um, 
everyone's music in one place. Um, how do you think about that? It, it almost feels like a dilemma. Maybe it isn't. I'd love to get your thoughts on that as a founder. It's a really interesting problem, yeah, um, because so far discovery has been completely centralized, really. There's been very few examples of decentralized discovery tools, but the the blockchain actually, in theory, would facilitate this very well because um, at, at its very basic, basic uh, level, it, it, it promotes discovery in the sense that if you find a music NFT artist early and you buy their NFT, you will be financially rewarded in the, in the case where that, that, that NFT then grows in value. So that's a form of discovery, a very crude form of discovery, but you can, you can kind of act as a, um, a music NFT promoter by seeking out smaller artists, buying into them, promoting them, and then getting financial uh, value out of that. But also I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot more nuance to it. And um, we're seeing technology where you're able to reward different people for doing different things. So when somebody mints, a, a portion goes to the artist from, from that mint price, a portion goes to their songwriter and any other people they've worked with. But also a portion of that could go to the person that, that referred the, 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 the minter or the person that, that acted as the discovery tool or maybe the website which referred that person. And that is, that is totally decentralized. You don't need anyone to, to handle that. That's all handled by the blockchain. Um, so I think we'll see a future where you, you listen to some music on Spotify or maybe there's a playlist on Spotify or maybe there's a website um, which features different music NFT artists and all of these different touch points will be rewarded financially for, for that um, service and it'll be on the blockchain and it'll be decentralized. Is that a good place to wrap this up? Yeah, thank, yeah. thanks Robin for, for coming on. This was, this was great. I yeah, appreciate you coming on and uh, spending yeah. some time with us. And the, yeah, can, no, can, I think it's great. Can we do a, a music recommendation? Can be an yes. NFT uh, artist, uh, but it can also just be. Uh, I think it has else. to be a music NFT artist. I think I would be uh, dragged across the hot coals if I didn't recommend a music <laughs> NFT artist. No, but genuinely, this is a this is a recommendation, and it's not a nifty music artist. So I, I would I would recommend anyone checks out um, Emma Miller. Um, she's a Scottish folk singer uh, who has r- relatively recently got into NFTs, and her music's incredible. I, I love folk music, and she's just got this otherworldly voice um and it's beautiful so i would thoroughly recommend you search for emma miller on she's on twitter she's on everything um and mint her next nft emma miller here we come okay (laughs) excellent we'll check it out uh yeah thanks thanks so much for coming on uh robin and um yeah we'll we'll sign off here and uh we'll hit we'll come back with episode five